and welcome to the Psych and P podcast, where we talk all about the life and work of being a psychiatric nurse practitioner in various settings and types of practices. I'm your host, Matt Schroer, Rhymes with Flamethrower. On today's episode, we talk about the ins and outs of starting a private practice. Today's episode is in no way brought to you by the film Apollo 13, but is partly brought to you by two great white Pyrenees on the lamb. Mary Carter, welcome. Thanks for being here today. You're always a fan favorite, and it's so nice to... I've mentioned this before in in previous things, but it's really nice to do these things because I just get to hang out with my friends, and I get to like ask them fun questions, and we get to just talk and hang out and talk about work, but not be at work at the same time. And so I really like to do that. So thank you so much for being here. You're one of my most favorite people, and I tell people this all the time, that you are my litmus test, that if people don't like Mary Carter, then there's something wrong with you. So Right back at you, Matt. Thanks for being here. I, I appreciate it. I'm super excited. Yeah. This is fun. Yeah. So this is a a new thought that I had of just talking with people about their work and how they came into nursing, how they became a psych nurse practitioner and just like day-to-day stuff. Cause I think when we first start working or decide to go into this field, we think that sounds great. And I have this idea from movies and TV shows about what a therapist may do or what a psychiatrist may do, but Mm -hmm. I don't think we really fully know unless you've worked in the field which a lot of people have but a lot of us are like I think I want to do that thing and I think I want to work in this setting or I think I want to work in a private practice or start a private practice or community setting or hospital setting but you don't really know and so the whole point of this was talk to different people in different environments to see where how they got there, what they like about it, the steps that it takes to to get to do that, and why not bring in experts who've done all those things? Because I could talk about them, but I work in one setting and I haven't done all those things. So just talking to you about, you've done a lot of different things. Yes, I have. You've had several several <laughs> so jobs in kind of different <laughs> positions. And, and so just talk a little bit about how you got into nursing and how you got here today. Okay. Yes. And it was a long and winding road for me, or I guess I should say I didn't see it coming. Did you include that song on your playlist? I didn't, but I got some Beatles on there. (laughs) Don't worry. I do have Beatles on there. No, because my whole life, earliest memories, I wanted to be a vet since the time I was born, persisted into my more early adulthood, went to undergrad for pre-vet. And I went to a really small liberal arts school where I, if I knew that about you. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever talked about that. That's actually. why this is fun is because I get to, re- <laughs> I get to really know people exactly. that things that I, I never knew before. So sorry, go ahead. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so they lumped us all in since it was such a small school, pre-med and pre-vet were all lumped together. And my junior year of undergrad about to decide what you're d- going to do next. I realized I was an RA that year and I thought, I really like animals, but I think I want to work with people. There's something rewarding about even that, helping freshmen adjust to this new life. I remember a girl on my hall was self-harming that came out. Walking along that process with her, getting her to professionals, I did not manage that myself. But I think that made me start thinking, okay, I think I want to work with people. And I talked to my advisor And I said, I'm not going to medical school. Don't even say it. I'm not doing this for eight more years. And he said, what about nurse practitioner? And I knew nothing about it and started looking into it and thought that sounds like the perfect marriage between 
science and social sides of my brain, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, I love both of those things. Yeah. So I'm going to go for it. What a wise advisor. Mine was like, you go and I had a psychology undergrad and she was like, you go and you get a doctorate in counseling and then you do what I do. Like there was only one potential path. And I was like, I guess that's what you do. Right. And so like I had the, the long and winding road as well. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, thankful. Thankfully, your advisor had such wisdom to kind of point you in the right direction. But yeah, I never knew you were going to be a vet. Yes. Explains your lo- love of animals. Exactly. I know. Ellie is here sleeping next to us as we record. She is. One of my favorite stories is Mary had two giant Great Pyrenees dogs and they would dig holes under the fence and escape. So we live like, I don't know, a mile from each other. And so she would text me routinely, be on the lookout for the dogs. They've gotten out. (laughs) about that? Thank you, Matt. They were hard to miss running around the neighborhood. That's true. Giant white streaks of lightning with muddy paws from digging through the fence. Exactly. Always together. Never two part from from one another <laughs> up until the end <laughs> yeah. yeah so that's how I found my way and I found Vanderbilt's program and just because I didn't want to put in more work than I felt like at that point you know end of undergrad I said I'm going to apply to Vanderbilt if I get in I'll go if I don't I'll apply to other places and I got in it's the only yeah. place I applied <laughs> same I yeah. know it's, yeah. it's so weird it's very weird yeah. I don't know yeah but it worked out So you started off in community settings and that kind of stuff, right? So talk through that a little bit. Yes, which that was an interesting road that I didn't see coming either because I was working as a floor nurse at the time during our second year, which I don't recommend. (laughs) Hopefully you guys are already not in that position. Very exhausting. I had an interview in Arizona at an eating disorder treatment program out there. At the time it was called Remuda Ranch, which I think is something else now. And I was so excited. I'd gone through lots of interviews. They were essentially implying I had the job. And then it was the recession hit. Mm. What was that? 2008 fall of, and they went into a hiring freeze and I didn't get the job and I was devastated. And looking back, I'm so thankful that didn't happen because it was such a specialized subspecialty of psych, Sure, I would in no way have learned what I learned in community mental health, mm-hmm. which is where I ended up going because they always have openings, especially for first year yeah. psych NPs. The site I went to had loan repayment. That was a huge draw and I wanted to get my loans paid off. So that's where I applied and I begrudgingly took the job because I really wanted to be in Arizona, but I'm so thankful I went. I learned every diagnosis, every medication, every side effect, and worked there for about three and a half years, which you did it way longer than me. I couldn't do it. I did it for eight. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I I knew I had to get out after that (laughs) amount of time. Not because it's bad, but it is fast paced. It is high volume. It's hard. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can't run a marathon constantly. Exactly. You have to stop every once in a exactly. while. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I think one thing that community mental health really 
teaches you is to be really efficient. Completely agree. Because you don't have time to just stand around or time to dilly dally. Like you've got a room full of people and you have to be really regimented and and structured in how you do things, which I think serves you pretty well kind of going forward in any place that you go. Yes. You have to learn to be focused when you're doing an assessment. There's no room for fluff in those visits, which makes you really good at that. So then one day when you do have a job where there's space, you're really focused and efficient and you can broaden what -hmm. you talk about, but it makes you a good diagnostician (laughs) and good at redirecting people who talk too much. And and filtering out noise and being able to pay attention to really what the problems are and what you can change and what you can address. Because there's a lot of things that's like, I can't really do anything to help with that, but like, and and so you, you figure out how to be able to manage those things, I think in a, in a more concise way and you just get good at that. Agreed. You figure out what's my role and what's not my role because working outside of Davidson County or Williamson County, there's a lot of needs. Like people come in, I can't pay my electric bill or my water got shut off and you quickly learn what you can directly intervene with and where you need to refer. Let me connect you with this other service. Let me connect you with this case manager. But if you try to carry all those things and fix all those things, you'll burn yourself real quick. Yeah, you can't be all things to all people. No. And and you are but one person. And I think working in that kind of environment that is a team oriented, you really learn that. Totally agree. Which is great. Totally agree. Yeah. And you figure out your place on the team. Mm -hmm. These other people can't diagnose or prescribe. I can. So I need to focus on that. And I'm not going to try to rob your social services or, you know, that you can provide because I can't do it all. Yeah. Yeah. So then you did that for three and a half years and then you moved on to more specialized kind of work. Yes, absolutely. So at that point I did drug and alcohol treatment and loved it, loved that population. I had a really unique role because it was a grant that these five different agencies in town had come together, all recognized they needed an NP, but none of them could afford to pay one by themselves. So they collaborated together on a grant that paid the salary for one NP to spend a day at each site. And so that's what I did for, I did that for about three years also, I guess. Because, uh-huh, yeah, I'm having to go back and do the years in my mind. And um, so it was a, a homeless shelter, three drug and alcohol treatment programs, and then a youth, like emerging homeless youth, emerging adults, I guess I should say, homeless yeah. youth, emerging adults program here. And so I spent a day at each place. It lacked structure. That was hard for me, for my personality. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would love a blank slate and be like, let me just create my own schedule, my own processes, all those things. But the change from something very processed and Mm -hmm. structured for you to that, I couldn't find my footing a little bit, my confidence there. The pendulum swung too far the other way. Too far. That was it. That was it. But such a cool job when I think back on it and the patients I got to see. Mm -hmm. and, And there was a lot of freedom to do 
relationship building more so than in community mental health for sure Yeah, because it was a little loosey goosey, <laughs> but you got to build those patient relationships. Most of the places they were there longer term, two of the houses, two of the programs here in Nashville are for women. They can stay for two years if they want to, if they're coming out of homelessness, addiction, prostitution, mm -hmm. they can stay there for a long time. And so you really got to know them. Yeah. And with that, you see the other side of nonprofit life, which is hard, too, because people are trying to get the work done with the resources they have. And that can blur a lot of lines and boundaries. Yeah. And yeah. Legalities. And sure. Sure. <laughs> and, and with a budget that is yes. super minimal Absolutely. and and you do end up having to just work really hard to get a lot of stuff done when there's yeah. not a lot of resources. Exactly. And so sometimes maybe those ethical lines get a little blurry sometimes. Exactly. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. Which is the flip side of sort of the demon of managed care too is yes, it restricts a lot of what you can do and controls a lot of what you can do and provides an overseeing body that makes sure <laughs> ethical things are done. Which sometimes there are people who might not be as yes. have best interest or the most ethical practice at heart and yes. how much how much money can I make and how quickly can I do it? Exactly. Kind of thing. Yes. Which is absent at the nonprofits I worked for. It was very very people whose hearts were in it. Yes. And maybe didn't have as much of the professional side of things. Yeah. So so the social heart, but maybe not the business chops there you a go. lot of times. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And finding the right balance of that. I think it's really hard because somebody who's really great, a great manager or great kind of like business mind is going to be drawn yes. to maybe for-profit world yep. versus nonprofit world and you've got these yeah. bleeding heart people who you know just want to yes. save the world going and doing yes. these things is like but i don't know how to how to work excel absolutely <laughs> that's it that's it yeah yeah, yeah. so you, you were there for a while and then you went kind of back into community health practice a little bit yes yeah. i ended up doing that for a couple years one of the nonprofits i ended up moving to full-time for a couple years but then came back to community health mm -hmm. after that. Yeah. And I think a lot of factors played into that transition because I love the recovery population. Yeah. That particular site was going through a lot of changes and figuring themselves out. And it was time to go for a lot of reasons, which was sad. It was very, yeah, mixed emotions there, yeah. but landed at this beautiful community health integrated care, I guess, would you call it like, yeah. yeah, primary and psych, which that was cool. That was my first time doing work like that. That was that interconnected. You really literally could send your patient down the hall to get lab work or see a primary care provider. And that's nice as a psych NP to have that resource. Yeah. Having, down. having a lab on site is yes. fantastic. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Having providers, if if you just need to get somebody, if they don't have any other primary care, you can get them connected right there. Mm -hmm. And they had that awesome care coordination department where if yeah. someone couldn't turn their lights on, man, there was a very practical resource you could set them up with. Or just the referral process. I mean, that's yes. one of the things I love about care coordination is this person needs a referral for ABA therapy. Yes. And I can send a message through the EMR to them and say, 
get them connected with ABA and then like I'm done and then I can move on, which is fantastic. And so a lot of places where you are may not have that level of resources. So you're doing a lot of those referrals yourself, which is time consuming and can be exhausting. Yes. It protects against burnout, having that service right there. Yeah. 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 And then you came back to a more general thing and then you swung yeah. back to more specialized swung again. More specialized. <laughs> and again, I know it's been a lot of changes, but this opportunity came up at an eating disorder treatment program, yeah. which I'd always known I want to do um, addiction treatment and eating disorder treatment if I can get a chance mm-hmm. as a psych NP. And there's not a lot of eating disorder treatment in Nashville. Yeah. I don't know if folks know we're pretty limited mm-hmm. in our resources. So when this opportunity opened up, I was like, man. I love where I am, but I've always wanted to do that. And I don't know when it'll open up again. So I should go for it. Yeah. And did that for about five years there. Yeah. So, and that brings us to today when you have a private practice. That's right. So talk through kind of the decision to jump ship to your own practice where you run everything. You mentioned before feeling a little bit unswaddled in your second job that was and so now it's like now you're literally responsible for everything and in charge of everything policies procedures you know scheduling like all of it it's all to you so sort of talk through kind of that process and what your mindset and what led you to thinking about that biggest thing I would say is I had the experience all those varying experiences that led me up to this I think are desperately important. And I know there's some personalities out there who really could out of school, start a private practice and feel real confident. Yeah. But I think that's a rarity because once you know, there's nothing I haven't seen and wouldn't know what to do with. There's just about nothing. There's probably always going to be something, but then you're safe to just spread your wings and fly because you know, you're a good provider. Those first couple years, you're asking your neighbor next door, you're G chatting the friends that you (laughs) graduated with. Like, what do I do with insomnia? Um, Do I start with what's a dose of whatever you need the help and the support. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think ask people who are more experienced, you know, it's, when, when you arrogant. Would, yeah. I think well, you don't need help. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah no, yeah. I, I think sometimes it's scary when you feel like you know absolutely everything. Yes. And when you and I worked in the same office together for a while, we would constantly sort of bounce back and forth to each yes. other, partly just to like chit chat and, and BS with each other because we needed a break and yes. needed to kind of clear our heads from the day. But also like, hey, I just saw this. Like, yeah. what do you think? And I trust you and yes. know that you're not going to look at me and tell, tell me I'm an idiot right. because I am questioning this decision that I made or not knowing where to go with that. So being in in an environment that has a lot of support, I think initially is really important. Totally agree. So I think I couldn't have started a private practice much earlier, maybe not any earlier, because I was about 10, exactly 10 years into practice before I started a private practice. Okay. And I think part of what drove that decision too is going from these really sub-specialized areas. I wanted to see them all. I liked Mm -hmm. all those populations, but you can only do it one at a time if you work in treatment. Sure. So private practice, I get to see whoever I want. I can see trauma. I can see eating disorder. I can see addiction recovery. I can do whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that freedom started to be real appealing to me. And I knew I wanted to teach one day. I thought that would be really fun. That's always been something 
something fun. And that me. gives you the flexibility to be able to do that because exactly. you make your own schedule exactly. and you dictate when you work and when you don't work. Oh my gosh. It's a beautiful <laughs> thing. But the only downside being you don't get paid for time you take off, but yeah, you get to take time off without asking anybody. And yeah. it's amazing. <laughs> you grant your own, your own uh, PTO, PTO, which is great. Exactly. I, I guess it's, it's not paid right. uh, time off, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you, you, you T-I. get to go whenever you want. That's right. And exactly. being the consummate world traveler that you are, um, <laughs> that's, it. yes, that's, yes, that's probably pretty nice. It was a huge draw. And I think that does speak to self care though. Like, I feel like that gets overused mm-hmm. that phrase, but and I'm not in any of the other specialties, but definitely for a psych specialty, you have to take care of yourself because you're the therapeutic tool, you the human. Yes, you're writing these scripts, but your interaction with that patient is half the time what matters more. Mm -hmm. And that's draining. You gotta have your stores built up and yes one of mine is to travel across the world (laughs) so securing your own oxygen mask before assisting others to use a travel metaphor exactly on a plane yep absolutely so i knew it was trying it was stressful to ask for pto to do the thing that you that refills you and it's real freeing to just do it whenever you want yeah wonderful. That's great. So I think one of the things that kind of intimidates me and before when we were planning this, I was like, okay, Mary, your job is to convince me to start a private practice or to join a private practice. So one of the things that's intimidating to me as far as starting one of those is like, how do you do it? Like, oh my gosh, you just like, I'm going to like rent a space and then like start telling people that here I am. Like, how do you do that? Like, what are the steps involved? Step one, don't do what I did and try to find a book that tells you step by step how to start a private practice. There is no private practice for dummies. It don't exist. It does not. You should not write for psych NPs. Listen, I have thought about it. Even a brochure, just something. <laughs> a short pamphlet. <laughs> a short pamphlet. I'll fling from the rooftops to any NP yeah. who wants it. Because there's a lot of steps, but you don't, even once you list them all out, you don't know which one to do first. And gotcha. no one out there tells you. Okay. So I I think what I have figured out or what I did figure out was here are some steps that don't require income yet. And here are some where it would be nice if you were generating income okay. to do or real close to generating income to do. Okay. So first thing I would say is get a supervising physician okay. to agree to supervise you, which in Tennessee, some of our listeners may not be from Tennessee, mm-hmm. may not have to do that, but here we still do. And that's free essentially to write up an agreement that an MD will then sign once you start seeing patients. Now you'll pay them per chart or per hour that they review your charts. But that's a free thing to secure. Doesn't cost you anything until you start. That's exactly right. And you can't start without it. So it's this, it's crux. You gotta do that first. Then what I would say you do next is go ahead and organize your business, file for your business license. It's a one-time cost up front. Usually you have to do it through, you can do most of it through an accountant, Okay. which is a little bit cheaper than doing all of it through a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But if you do most of it through an accountant, they'll filing your PLLC. I'm sure there's a legal person out there who's <laughs> correcting me in their mind, but that last part to file requires a lawyer. Okay. And I think it takes them less than an hour. So whatever their hourly fee is. So you gotta have a little chunk of money to go ahead and file your business. Some people do it without 
an LLC or a PLLC, which I did lots of research. And PLLC is a professional limited liability company, which means you have to have some specialized license as opposed to, I want to form an LLC to sell my pottery that I make or something like that. Okay. So that's why I did a PLLC. And having an LLC prevents people from coming after you personally and taking your home should something happen. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So go ahead and do that before you start seeing patients. You have to give them an address. Some of it happens simultaneously. Um, And so for that reason, it's tough to go ahead and start renting a space before you're seeing patients because that's expensive. That's probably your biggest overhead cost. Sure. But I think some of them will let you use your home address to go ahead and file. So even if you don't have a, a site yet, you could set up your PLLC first. Okay. You might just have to go back and change that address someday. Okay. Which businesses change? That hopefully sh- change. shouldn't be too much of it. Something you could do online, hopefully. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And with that, go ahead and buy your malpractice. That's mm-hmm. a once a year cost. It's a chunk think mine's like 800 a year something like that but you want that set up before you see a patient for sure absolutely yes yes because that, that first patient could be a disaster you never know yes absolutely and then there's those little dangling participles which if you've been practicing at all you probably have an npi a national provider identification yeah. which i know second year's if that's who we're talking to, yeah. it gets real stressful there at the end. Like, I need my license, but also my ANCC certification. And what's this about a I'm DEA yeah, and an yeah. NPI? So you probably have all that already, but just make sure you have an NPI and a DEA mm-hmm. already for you as an individual. Because you might work under an entity's NPI, depending on who hires you. But I think most of the time you have to get your own. So you probably have that already set up. You can Google how to do that. And then make sure you've got a phone number and an email. Because once you start getting referrals, you want them to be able to contact you. Mm -hmm. So I did just the Google Google phone so I could use my cell phone, but they weren't calling my cell number. Giving your actual phone number out to patients. Yeah, exactly. So I did that. Same yeah, thing. Google Voice is nice. Google it's, Voice, it's that's free. what I'm talking about. Um, gives you a phone number. You yep. can get text messages and phone calls, yep. and it looks like it's coming from that number rather than yes. your number, but you can have it all on one phone. Exactly. Which is nice, yeah. Exactly. And you can tell when someone's calling your Google Voice and not your cell phone on the screen. Yeah. So if you don't want to answer a patient phone call on a Sunday afternoon, you know sure. what's going on. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so do that so you can get referrals. And then website. So what I did is I went ahead and bought a, no, this is going to get, I should not be talking about this, but I bought whatever the web address, I guess. Okay. But I haven't created the website. Okay. Which you do not need to do like me. The only reason I haven't done that is because I have a lot of connections with therapists Mm -hmm. around town because of all the places I've worked. So I get lots of referrals and I haven't needed a website yet. Sure. If you don't know that you have a network of connections, you'd want to get yourself actually a website so people can find you and know you. But all my referrals right now come from people who know me and know what I like to treat and have worked with me probably in some capacity before. And so that's really nice. Which is probably, yeah, which has to be because you're not just getting randos like exactly you know 
referring to you or calling you and, and that kind of thing. So there's a little bit of security in knowing the type of patient that you're probably going to get. Exactly. Exactly. Like I know full well. So when I went to school, I got the adult certification that doesn't exist anymore. Sorry guys, you're all family. Yeah. But I did that cause I knew I probably didn't want to treat kids mm -hmm. as such. I know my experience with ADHD is very limited. And when I get a referral just for ADHD, I know that I can say, I'm not the best at that. Like I could prescribe for you and it would be okay. But if you want a really nuanced approach, sure. who, what if you have to get creative? Cause you really don't respond well to certain meds that will not be my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. So things like that, you can choose to say, I'm not the best for you, but let me give you a name yeah. of someone who could be better. No, that, yeah, that sounds pretty nice coming from a, you know, I, in a world where everyone comes to me and there's very little ability to yes. kind of say, no, I may not be a great fit for them. You do not have that option in a lot of, yeah. <laughs> in a lot of yeah. agencies. You yeah. see who they send you and that's it. Yeah. So all, how long do you think it took you to get all of these sort of steps in place before you could actually mm. start seeing patients? Good question. Well, I talked to people a ton, but I'm also a bit of an anxious person. So I got a lot of information. I talked to my friends for probably about a year, my friends who had already done private practices, okay. therapists, et cetera. And then once I decided to pull the trigger, that was probably about January of 2018. And I opened, started seeing my first patients in June. Okay. And I bet you could do it much quicker than that, but I was just constantly making sure I had all my ducks in a yeah. row and, yeah. but yeah. And you were still working at yes. one of the other places when you did that. So you just exactly. kind of dipped a toe in the water. Dipped a toe one day a week in private practice, which I found an office, a friend who had a private practice, didn't use her office a couple days a week. So I mm -hmm. sublet from her, okay. which was awesome because the cost is much less. You're just sure. paying for that day and you don't have to fully quit your job and hope you get enough referrals to pay your mortgage. These are the things I worry about, but yeah. people do it and they're fine. Yeah. There's a huge need in Nashville. There is no shortage of patients. So mm. it's kind of nice to do the cross taper titrate, cross I guess. Titrate. <laughs> I definitely cross titrated from employer to private practice. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I was, I did it that way. No, I, I could see where that would be probably the smartest thing to do and reduce some anxiety about yes. the whole process not all right I'm cutting the cord completely yes and then what if no one shows exactly and then I can't pay my mortgage anymore and yeah so I can imagine that would that would be scary so having yeah. the assurance that I do have this other job in place that's giving me health benefits and yes and that kind of thing huge yeah yeah you don't end up just taking anybody and everybody because you're desperate to fill your sure. week and sure you get to be a little selective and that's yeah. nice which is nice so talk to me about what's your typical day look like in private practice like how many patients you see, how long do you take with them, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, it is a learning curve at first, and I structured it the way my employers had always structured it with an hour, 60 minute psychiatric evaluation, and I gave myself a 30 minute follow up. I hated 15 minute follow ups, yeah. it's just so fast. So I knew I wanted that. And as time went by, I realized I would like a 75 minute evaluation because you can do it in 60 minutes mm -hmm. and it's so nice to have that extra 15 yeah. to really talk about your treatment goals for them or screen for something. You're not sure if it's there, if you got enough information to rule out. So I shifted to that. So all that to say, 
typically I have, and again, no website, just referral word of mouth about two new evals a week. So I do two 75 minute evals usually on separate days, two to three. And that's just me. They're a little tiring when you do a really good job. It's, it's hard to see multiple evals in a day. Well, and generally that's when people are doing their worst as well. Truth. And so they tend to be a little bit harder from that standpoint, whereas follow-ups who you've seen for a while who are pretty stable, like not necessarily so tiring as a new patient appointment where you're learning everything you can about them. Plus generating a treatment plan. Exactly. All the stuff that goes along with a new patient appointment. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And right now I should say I'm in my private practice two days a week, so I'm still not all the way up to five days, but it's amazing because that is a nice amount of time to work and feel okay. Um, Gives you plenty of time to travel. Plenty of time to travel. Yes. And pay your bills. It's magical. Yeah. And so I'll typically see in a full day, I give myself a lunch break, which a lot of places that you work don't, which is so wrong. What a novel concept. Novel. Eating lunch. Weird. Have some food. <laughs> yes. Keep your brain working. Yeah. So I'll tend to see about 12 patients a day. Okay. 10 to 15 is probably the range that I see. But on average, about 8 to 12 is typical. Okay. And you're all in person or telehealth or a mix of both? Or how do you do that? So I'm all in person now, which I love. For me, the connection just is so much more real. I feel like you get more data from being in person than being on virtual. People want to talk more, which pros and cons to that, (laughs) (laughs) but all in person, I will caveat, like do a phone call if for some reason they are feeling sick or they can't get there for some reason. So occasionally I'll do phone calls for follow-ups, but I won't do anything but in person for any eval. COVID rules. COVID rules. You yeah. get everything, obs, everyone knows. <laughs> All rules went out the window for COVID, yes. but now I'm settling back into yeah. normalcy. Okay. Yeah. What's a really great day for you? Oh, man. A great day is you leave feeling like your brain is tired because you thought about things and helped come up with a solution. So for me, that looks like I love seeing a patient who is slightly hopeless that something could ever get better for them because they've tried this a lot. Oftentimes you see that go hand in hand with trauma because meds, you know, it's an odd thing for a patient who has experienced trauma to think that a medicine will then help that because a life event caused it. How could a medicine fix it? But you just, when you do all this education and you have the time to do it, You tell them you have seen this work, you've seen it work time and time again, and you build someone's trust from the start of a session to the end of a session. And you had to work really hard for it. I think those trauma patients are what I'm thinking of because Mm -hmm. they don't give trust easily. So when you gain it and they leave with this hope that something could be different and you're tired because you had to work real hard, that is a good feeling. That's my favorite. You feel you made a difference. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's a bad day? A bad day, I hate to say this, I really do, is when you leave feeling as hopeless for the patient mm. as they feel for themselves. It's yeah. a terrible, and you, I, that's rare. Usually we have a solve, and it, it doesn't happen all the time, but I can think of a couple patients that you walk away feeling like, dang, I don't know what's going to help this, or I don't know... 
if meds are what are going to help this for this person, oftentimes it has to do with motivation. I have a very vivid picture of a patient that I saw several months ago who has an eating disorder. She's been in and out of treatment. She's in her 60s. So this has been a lifelong situation. When she goes downhill, she goes down so hard and she's losing her motivation to change. And she's lost a lot of weight and she's very sick. She couldn't stand up straight in my office. She drove herself there so I had to call the ambulance because I couldn't let her drive herself home and she was so unwilling to go back to get treatment again leaving feeling like I'm just about as hopeless for you as you are for yourself that's a terrible feeling you always want to have hope for people and knowing that there are steps that you can do and steps that you can try if you would just let me yeah just let me let me help you yeah and some of that really does boil down to I can guide the path, but you've got to walk it. 100%. And I think that's hard. And it took me a while to really get to where I fully understood that and believed that. When somebody came to me, it was always, well, I have this knowledge and I have these things and I have these skills. Like, I should be able to always do something to help. Right. And it was this... I mean, not not a revelation of sorts, but like it just took time for that to really sink in where it's like, oh, I'm just a tiny little part of this process. Absolutely agree. I mean, I have a lot of influence for over sure. the situation, but I'm not, they have to live their life and they have yes. to do the hard work. It's, I'm sort of the personal trainer of sorts. Like, you know, I can show you kind of the exercises and things you need to do, but you're the one who has to like do the crunches. That's it. And the push-ups. That's it. And all those kinds of things. This is just a perfect segue into my Apollo 13 reference that I tell (laughs) patients all the time, which I know this movie's old and it's crazy. Some patients I see were born after it came out, but that's fine. Whatever. What are you talking about, old lady? What is this movie? (laughs) What is this movie? Well, it's a movie about Apollo 13. and things fail on the ship and I don't remember all the details but what I'll tell my patients is there's a scene where their oxygen levels are running out do you remember this Mm -hmm. like filter failed or something and ground control has figured out how to make a new filter out of materials that the astronauts have on the ship and so they're radioing to the astronauts grab this box and this much duct tape and da 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 All they can do is tell them the materials to find how to tape them together and how to stick it in the filter thing. But if the astronauts don't do it, they're going to die of lack of oxygen and it's not going to be ground control's fault. I don't usually tell patients that line, but... (laughs) but like I can tell I you could go I, dark pretty fast. Yeah. It's not my fault if you, <laughs> but it is a good, it's a great picture. Mm-hmm. I can give you all the information. Here's what you do. Grab this tool. If you don't do it though, yeah, man, yeah, I can't make you do it. And that I think in a nutshell, what makes this work so hard sometimes totally agree. is not just being able to like, okay, well here's Prozac. And you're going to take it and everything's going to be better again. And that's so hard to reconcile sometimes. And I think where burnout comes in, it's like, my gosh, I'm like working so hard and I'm doing all these things. And it doesn't feel like anybody's really getting all that better. Some Um, people do. And I think that the 
the kind of reptilian brain in us that is, you know, attuned to danger and bad things. So we don't repeat those things yes. that that part gets hit a lot. And you start thinking, mm. oh, like, everyone's bad. Everyone's doing mm. terribly. No, I'm not funny. helping anybody. And so it just feels like, and then you mm. flip to, well, then it has to be their fault. It's got to mm. be, well, if you just quit using drugs, like if you'd yeah. stop doing that, then everything would be okay. You'd be better off. And I can't believe you can't do that. And like, yes. just eat, like yes. all you have to do is just eat and everything's fine. Yep. And so you start blaming other and not looking for like, this is just a broken person that is just doing anything they can to put one foot in front of the other sometimes. Yes. And and I think that that's where sometimes this work gets really, really hard is losing sight of that. Agreed. And just getting really stuck in this job is hopeless. Yes. The human yes. existence is hopeless. Yes. You got to watch out for that. Yeah. I'm telling you, if you find yourself as I did sitting across from a guy who had just discharged from the psych hospital for attempting suicide by mercury ingestion... He saved up thermometers wow. to ingest mercury. He wanted to die. Yeah. That is not a half-hearted attempt. Yeah. And going through, and I was quite young and thought how you help someone after they attempt suicide is, what have you got to live for? And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a little oversimplified, I think. Yeah. Um, but he didn't have a lot. Yeah. And when you find yourself being like, dang, it's hopeless. That pendulum of emotional boundaries, I think, can swing where you're like, I'm all in to help these people to, I can't care about these people at all, or yeah. I'm not going to make it. Yeah. yeah. You, you, at some point, the self-protection kicks yes. in and you've, you've given and given and given and given, and you're just depleted That's a, and completely empty. And yeah. so you have to, you know, resort to just shutting it down and yeah. almost seeming like you don't care anymore. Yes. And that's a really bad place to be from yeah. a professional standpoint and from a therapeutic standpoint. But I think just from a personal standpoint, Completely because agree. you can't make it and you can't last yeah. long enough in this field. If you're, if you start thinking that way. Yes. And you don't like yourself. I don't like myself when I don't care about people. Yeah. That's not satisfying. That's yeah. not why I went into this mm -hmm. field. And that's the work that I don't think you realize you're doing of where are my emotional boundaries? How do I maintain empathy and not take this home with me or take it into my skin? Yeah. You know? How do you do that? Matt? I don't know. I mean, it is, I should know because sometimes it feels a, like a passive evolution versus an intentional practice. And I have to try to remember how did I get to the point where I could maintain that balance? And it's hard to give perfect steps other mm -hmm. than you get to know yourself a lot. If you're not practicing self-awareness, yeah. you're not being a good psych MP, people <laughs> out there. You got to know yourself real well. Like what's starting to sink in and where can I debrief? Who gets this? Yeah. So your peers that yeah. you graduated with, yeah. your, if there's a mentor or a, a supervising MD that you trust, that's like gold. Mm -hmm. um, people who can talk you through the other side and say, I've seen it 
get better though. Um, and ask you, is that really your role to take on X, Y, Z, that person's family member that just died or whatever it might be, um, to help reframe what's dragging you down a little bit Mm -hmm. and then to connect with the things that you love. So what I love, like for me, yeah, I need to travel. I need to connect with the people that I love. Mm -hmm. And it reminds you of who you are outside of just being a provider, just being a provider. It's a big deal, but yeah. Cause you're a human with all these other hopes and dreams and likes and dislikes and friends and family and all those kinds of things that we don't, I, I, I tell people all the time and that I work to live yes, and agreed. not live to work. And I love what I do and I feel called to do what I do. And I feel the work that I do is really important, Yep. but I can't do it 24, seven, 365. No, like nor I've, should you. Yeah, should we? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So talk about like home and when you come home and with your significant other, do you debrief the day? Do you just like stick your fingers, you know, in your ears and like, la 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 la, we're just going to watch, you know, Netflix and have dinner and not talk about anything. Or or is it something that you feel like you need to process or go through? Great question. And I can see a distinct divide in my experience. When I first became a psych NP or started practicing, I was living with my sister, who's a teacher in high school, an amazing job. What I quickly discovered was if I debriefed with her, it was too much. Like she would be like, oh my gosh, I can't hear any more of this. I can't handle Mm -hmm. it which then puts me in the position of caretaking her a little bit too. And I've already put forth this energy. So that wasn't good. And I learned, I'm just not going to talk about my day when I come home because I can't do it twice. I can't care for the patient and then care for... Now the beautiful thing is my partner is a mental health professional, is a therapist. So it's so nice when someone speaks the same language knows what to take seriously and what not to take seriously. Mm -hmm. And I find it helpful and kind of energizing to debrief the day and even get another mental health professional's perspective on, oh yeah, sounds like this or sounds like Mm -hmm. that. That's what I was thinking. Thank you. Like that's so helpful. And that's wonderful. But I think probably sometimes people in the trenches who, who are in the trenches a lot like you can just come home and like have a sigh and they'll be like I got you I get it yes. like let's do something fun let's yeah, yeah. yeah. we don't need to talk about it yeah because yeah. sometimes it feels like you're you are reliving it like mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about every single thing I had to do today that I don't want to do my job again yeah it's yeah let's connect with something that we both love and yeah makes us feel like ourselves again sure. not just employees or yeah workers. Yeah. No, that's nice. My wife is super extroverted and loves to talk things out. And my son's really extroverted too. So I'm surrounded by like all of these really extroverted people and I'm kind of introverted. And so like, they always want to talk things out a lot of times. I'm like, I've talked all day. I can't do anymore. Oh my gosh. Um, Yes. Yeah. So I love my family and they're delightful and, and we do all of those things, but it is sometimes how much more do I have to give, um, to everyone else and being real protective of that. Yes. I think if you can tell, wait, it feels like I'm doing this other person a favor by telling them about my day. It's probably not helpful to you, but if you're like, oh man, this unloaded and now I'm done with the day, it's Mm -hmm. gone. 
that's probably a good way to. Yeah. And I would also think having somebody else in kind of mental health to be, I mean, I would talk yeah. to my wife and like my mom and other people who weren't in this field and to be like, I don't understand what you're saying. Yes. I don't understand. Like that sounds hard, but I don't that, get it. And that's too hard to try to also explain yes. why it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. a language to it. Yeah. There, there's too much backstory that you have to give. And yes. I'm like, I don't have time to give you all the backstory on all these things. No. So that has to be really nice. And my, my wife is amazingly supportive and does her best to try and understand. I mean, she works in an environment and I joke that she sees more psych than I do. I was going to say, um, she's got a very people forward yeah. job. People so, so yeah. um, but not having that kind of clinical piece, but she does a really great job of listening to me and hearing me. And if I'm just had a hard day or a rough day, like, you know, she's there. And I think yeah. part of being able to survive in this field is having people around you yes. that you can rely on and that you can go to when you need your bucket filled. Could not agree more. That is absolutely true. Yeah. The human connection, because it's not the same human connection when you're seeing a patient. You are connecting. It's kind of crazy, but you're only giving out, or really, if you're doing a good job, you really should not be taking any yeah. support from your patient. Yeah. They don't need to know about what's mm. going on in mm -hmm. your life. But yeah, and I think that we get from them in that I get really energized when somebody comes to me and's like, I'm doing really well and I yes. feel better yes. and like l the situation is so much better or yes. like I'm doing really well in school or I didn't think I was going to college, but now I am and I'm really oh excited gosh. about it. Amazing. And like those things are the things that at work that re-energize us. Totally agree. Yeah. It's so crazy energizing. Or they come to this realization that they didn't have before of like, oh my gosh, this thing I never realized is actually making my relationship hard for me. It's like, oh my gosh, now there's all this freedom and you're super excited about it. Yeah. 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 It, it, it makes the work worth doing. Yes. Yeah. So when you first started, how long do you think it was before you were like, okay, I got this and know what mm. I'm doing. Mm. I'm not panicking at every oh prescription I'm writing um, <laughs> or waking up in the middle of the night like oh my god what did I do today and I have yeah. to go back in in the morning and call this person oh. and tell them don't take this medicine oh that way <laughs> take it the exact opposite of what, what I told you <laughs> I that told kind of thing oh man okay I can think of three different phases phase one I think by three months at your very first job or really at any new job for me, I'm like, I've got the rhythm. I've got the rhythm down. I've got that. As far as being a new psych NP, once I hit a year, I didn't feel like a dummy anymore, but I distinctly remember once I hit three years, I felt like, okay, I'm pretty sure I'd know what to do with just about anything that walked through the door. Yeah. That was, those are like the three phases I remember going through, but then you're always learning, especially if you do move into subspecialty areas, mm -hmm. starting in an eating disorder treatment program, they don't teach us enough about eating disorders <laughs> in, in the world, I think, but that was a learning curve. The way, the words you became aware of, I became aware of every time I said, people get a ton of help from anything that had weight, you know. Oh, wow, yeah, the things you don't ever think never about. Never think about, or like, that's a big fat problem. You just start to realize yeah. you have to that think. That words matter. Words matter. Yeah. 
So you're always learning, which is great on mm. the one hand, but you've got enough foundation laid, even that that's, those are pretty surfacey things to learn or have to adjust to, but you've got the foundation of, I know how to be a psych NP. Yeah. So anywhere I go, I, I can do that. Yeah. I feel like that kind of tracks with me too. I mean, it was a year when I was, could finally say, okay, I, I don't have to look up the dose of Concerta anymore. Oh my gosh, yes, <laughs> I know exactly. What I, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yes. Like, I've written this enough times that like, okay, Milligrams. I got this. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that sort of thing. And then I think that, yeah, after a few years, it was like, okay, anything that walks through the door, yeah. I have like a passing idea of, yes. that I know what I can do with this. Absolutely agree. Because yeah. that's the other thing they don't teach you. And that first year, you figure out real quick insurance formularies. Yeah. You might be like, oh, depression, here's the ideal thing I want to prescribe you. And then it's There's like, lots of Trintelix. <laughs> it's like, that's a thousand dollars a month. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. learn real quick. Oh, you got to fail two of these and then you got to try one of these and then I can augment with an antipsychotic or whatever mm. it might be. Yeah. But that's a whole hoop to figure out yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted everybody to do is come up with a playlist and a playlist that is part of just what makes you think of this work or what gets you through the day or things that make you think of a time that was part of work. I think music is, is uniquely human mm-hmm. and a cool thing and, and a really great way to express people. And, and everyone knows that I love guitars and music and all kinds of things. And so yes, I had you come up with a playlist. So talk me through why you put the things that you put on there and you know, to go through every one of them but yeah okay listen this is a question i was most nervous about because <laughs> music is so important to me and you and i'm sure so many people out there and when i think of music oh ellie's gonna sing to us she is singing <laughs> from her cage um when I think of music, it was such a big part of my growing up because mm-hmm. I came from a musical family. My dad played guitar, my mom sang. So we would be having, you know, guitar sing-alongs at the house all the time, church, singing in church, the whole thing. Yeah. And so I think my frontal lobe developed in context <laughs> of music. Yeah. And, and with that, you know, I thought I could pick some songs that I love now, but I wouldn't love those songs without these very formative artists or okay. songs that I developed with. <laughs> Which, funny, we talked about travel all the time. Several of the songs I put on there are like my road trip playlist as a child. We'd drive, I'm from Oklahoma, we would take a road trip to Colorado every summer to camp. And there's like that Bob Dylan, Ring Them Bells. I cannot hear that song without feeling like I'm in a car in Kansas somewhere. (laughs) The Caravan, the last waltz version that Van Morrison does. And then that nitty gritty dirt band, feeling like I'm on a road trip to Colorado with my family, Sarah in the summer. That album we wore out in the car. So I think it's funny that travel is such a big part of my life because these are the songs that were present for every yeah. travel. And, as a and, kid. and part of your formative years. Part of my formative years. Yeah. yeah. Like that Woody Guthrie song I put on there. My dad used to play that for us all the time. Oh. And I think it has shaped now. I love these storyteller types mm-hmm. like Jason Isbell and Brandy Carlisle and people like that. Her new album's amazing. So good. Yeah. She's got like an Elton John thing going on. I think mm. she's tapping into her Elton John love. <laughs> I don't know. She's incredible though. She is. Yeah. She is. Yeah. So I think they're just songs that I wouldn't love what I love now if I hadn't been raised on these songs. Yeah. yeah. 
and and part of the thing the music that i love is what i grew up to and where i was in this headspace yeah and what kind of helped me and got me through really challenging things or tough things and i think music is just uniquely suited to that because it 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 stirs up emotions and it's so cool to be able to experience that i feel what i felt like as a nine-year-old when i listened to that counting crows august and everything after album i remember exactly how i felt i know go right back i know yeah it's so cool. Yeah. Well, this has been so fun. This I really, so really fun, appreciate man. you doing this. Thanks um, and again, it's one of those that like the best part is I just get to hang out with my friends and talk with my friends I about not agree more. important work and the things that they do. And I know that like, oh my gosh, people love you so much and everything that you do for us is always great. And I'm so appreciative. And I know that you do amazing work with people um, and how helpful you are with your patients and your students and just everybody and i adore you and love you so much and and i'm so so glad that we're friends and i'm so glad that we've um kept up and stayed friends this entire time so it's been really awesome hang on to your buddies guys yes Yes. (laughs) from this program they're so important for sure yes well thank you so much this has been so fun thank you 